This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of exertional compartment syndrome from the knee and sports section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Exertional compartment syndrome is an exercise-induced condition of the leg characterized by reversible ischemia to muscles within a muscular compartment. Diagnosis is made by obtaining compartment pressures at rest during exercise and post-exercise. Treatment generally involves surgical fasciotomies of the compartments involved. Now, let's get into the episode. Starting with epidemiology, as far as incidence, exertional compartment syndrome is the second most common exercise-induced leg syndrome behind medial tibial stress syndrome. In terms of demographics, males are more affected than females, it's often seen in the third decade of life, and it's typically seen in runners or those who run a lot for their sport. With respect to anatomic location, the anterior leg compartment is most commonly affected, specifically approximately 70% of the time. The anterior and lateral leg compartments are affected in 10% of cases. And finally, keep in mind that posterior leg compartment involvement is associated with less predictable surgical outcomes. Moving on to etiology, in terms of pathophysiology, let's talk about biochemistry and pathoanatomy of exertional compartment syndrome. So in terms of biochemistry, the local metabolism of the musculature cannot go fast enough to clear the metabolic waste products in the setting of exertional compartment syndrome. In terms of pathoanatomy, vascular advanced imaging and histologic experiments have not provided clear evidence of the pathoanatomy of this condition. Patients with exertional compartment syndrome may have lower density of capillaries compared to asymptomatic individuals. Fascial hernias have been identified with decompression. 40% of people with exertional compartment syndrome have these fascial defects, and only 5% of asymptomatic people have such defects. The most common location is near the intermuscular septum of the anterior and lateral compartments where the superficial perineal nerve exits. Moving on to the presentation of exertional compartment syndrome, symptoms include aching or burning pain in the leg. Patients can often predict how long the pain will last for after they stop exercise. Patients may also have symptoms of paresthesias over the dorsum of the foot, and symptoms are reproduced by exercise and relieved by rest. Symptoms typically begin approximately 10 minutes into exercise and slowly resolve approximately 30 to 40 minutes after exercise. Physical exam in these patients may be normal. However, you may find decreased sensation in the first web space and decreased active ankle dorsiflexion. Moving on to imaging, radiographs are useful to eliminate other pathology. An MRI is not very helpful in establishing diagnosis, however, can help eliminate other pathology. Evaluation of exertional compartment syndrome can be from compartment pressure measurement or near-infrared spectroscopy. Starting with compartment pressure measurement, remember that the limb should be in a relaxed and consistent position. Keep in mind that a compartment pressure measurement is required to establish a diagnosis of exertional compartment syndrome. Three pressures should be measured. The resting pressure, one-minute post-exercise pressure, and five minutes post-exercise pressure. Some authors advocate for an additional measurement point 15 minutes post-exercise. The diagnostic criteria for exertional compartment syndrome is that the resting or pre-exercise pressure is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, the immediate or one-minute post-exercise pressure is greater than 30 millimeters of mercury, a post-exercise pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury at 5 minutes, and a post-exercise pressure of greater than 15 millimeters of mercury at 15 minutes. As far as near-infrared spectroscopy, this modality can show deoxygenation of muscle. This is shown to return to normal within 25 minutes of exercise cessation. Treatment of exertional compartment syndrome can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes activity modification, which is rarely effective. 
Another non-operative modality is anti-inflammatory medications. Typically, you will attempt these treatments for three months prior to operating. Operative options include a two-incision fasciotomy, which is indicated for refractory cases. The technique usually involves a two-incision approach, a lateral incision, and a medial incision. A lateral incision will release the anterior and lateral compartments and is made 12 to 15 centimeters above the lateral malleolus. Be sure to identify and protect the superficial perineal nerve. Keep in mind that you may see a fascial hernia during this approach. The medial incision is used to release the posterior compartments. This should be performed if needed based on compartment measurements. You can release at the middle of the tibia at the posterior border. An endoscopic fasciotomy will use smaller incisions, however, will have similar complications. As far as outcomes, this is not a home-run procedure because symptoms are often multivariable. There are no studies directly comparing operative to non-operative treatment options. Keep in mind that surgery is successful in greater than 80% of cases for the anterior compartment. Deep posterior compartment success is lower, around 60%. Now let's end this review session talking about some complications of exertional compartment syndrome. These include nerve injury, most commonly the superficial perineal nerve, DVT, and recurrence. And keep in mind that there is up to a 20% recurrence at a mean of two years after fasciotomy. This is because of fibrosis slash scar formation. Risk factors for recurrence include an isolated compartment release. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 17-year-old male hurdler presents with burning pain and paresthesias in bilateral legs. He reports symptoms predictably after 10 minutes of running and training. The pain is localized over the dorsum of the foot and anterior leg. He denies any associated back pain. There is no apparent motor weakness, and peripheral pulses are 2-plus and symmetric with ankle plantar flexion and dorsiflexion. The patient undergoes surgical treatment of this condition. Which of the following would place the patient at risk for recurrence? And the choices are 1. 4-compartment fasciotomy using a 2-incision technique. 2. Age less than 23 years old. 3. Isolated anterior and lateral compartment releases. 4. Higher preoperative post-exertion compartment pressures. And 5. Bilateral leg involvement. The correct answer to this question is 3. Isolated anterior and lateral compartment releases. So the patient underwent a fasciotomy for chronic exertional compartment syndrome, which has a higher treatment failure when there is anterior and lateral compartment release alone. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, 4-compartment fasciotomy using a 2-incision technique is incorrect, as a 4-compartment fasciotomy has been associated with decreased reoperation rates compared to anterior and lateral compartment releases alone. Answer 2, age less than 23 is incorrect, as patients under the age of 23 have higher treatment success rates and satisfaction rates than patients over 23 years of age. Answer 4, higher preoperative post-exertion compartment pressures is incorrect as preoperative post-exertion compartment pressure measurements have not been associated with treatment failure. And finally, answer 5, bilateral leg involvement is incorrect as bilateral involvement has not been associated with treatment failure. To quickly review, chronic exertional compartment syndrome is characterized by reversible ischemia of the muscles within the compartments of the lower leg. In the adult population, it most commonly occurs in the anterior compartment and is seen more commonly in males and military service members. In the pediatric population, chronic exertional compartment syndrome is more common in females involved in running sports. Symptoms consist of burning or aching pain in the affected compartment with a predictable time to onset after activity. 
Diagnosis is made with compartment pressure measurements at rest that is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, one minute post-exercise that is greater than 30 millimeters of mercury, five minutes post-exercise that is greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, and 15 minutes post-exercise that is greater than 15 millimeters of mercury. Beck et al. performed a retrospective study of 155 pediatric patients treated for chronic exertional compartment syndrome. They reported that 50% of patients were multi-sport athletes with a 79.5% return to sport rate following surgical treatment. They concluded the recurrence following compartment fasciotomy occurs in 18.8% of patients, which is more common in those undergoing anterior and lateral compartment releases only. Packer et al. performed a retrospective cohort study of 112 patients that were treated for chronic exertional compartment syndrome. They reported an 81% surgical treatment success rate with higher treatment failure associated with combined anterior and lateral releases with a 31% treatment failure and post-college age patients with a 66% failure rate. The authors recommended avoidance of lateral release in patients unless symptoms of post-exertional compartment syndrome are clearly present in the lateral compartment only, and higher preoperative post-exertion compartment pressures were not associated with treatment failure. Campano et al. performed a systematic review of 24 studies that included 1,596 patients surgically treated for chronic exertional compartment syndrome. The authors noted that the anterior compartment was the most affected in 51% of cases, followed by the lateral compartment in 33% of cases, the deep posterior compartment in 13% of cases, and the superficial posterior compartment in 3% of cases. They determined surgical treatment of chronic exertional compartment syndrome is successful in two-thirds of patients. Moving on to the next question. A 28-year-old male presents to your clinic for evaluation of bilateral leg pain. The pain occurs only while he is running and gets gradually worse after his second mile. The pain is associated with a burning sensation on the top of his feet and tingling sensation in his toes. The pain gradually resolves around 20 minutes after he stops running. On physical exam, he has full range of motion of his knee and ankle joints, no tenderness to palpation, and a normal neurovascular exam. Radiographs do not show any abnormalities. Which of the following is true regarding the current optimal method of diagnosing this patient's condition? And the choices are 1. Compartment pressures at rest and at 30 minutes post-exercise are needed for establishing a diagnosis. 2. Compartment pressures immediately post-exercise and at 30 minutes post-exercise are needed for establishing a diagnosis. 3. Compartment pressures at rest immediately post-exercise and at 5 minutes post-exercise are needed for establishing a diagnosis. 4. Compartment pressures at rest and continuously for 60 minutes post-exercise are needed for establishing a diagnosis and five compartment pressures at rest and immediately post-exercise are needed for establishing a diagnosis. The correct answer to this question is three compartment pressures at rest, immediately post-exercise, and at five minutes post-exercise are needed for establishing a diagnosis. So the patient has clinical signs and symptoms of exertional compartment syndrome. To establish this diagnosis, intracompartmental pressures need to be measured at rest immediately post-exercise at one minute, and at five minutes post-exercise. Some authors also advocate for an additional time point of 15 minutes post-exercise. Exertional compartment syndrome is most commonly seen in runners in their third decade of life. The exact etiology of why this occurs in some runners is not clear, but it is thought to be partially due to a lower density of capillaries in the legs of patients with exertional compartment syndrome compared to asymptomatic individuals. Patients typically will complain of pain that occurs with prolonged running that leads to numbness, tingling, and a burning sensation in the feet and resolves gradually with the cessation of running. 
intracompartmental pressures at rest immediately after exercise and for 30 minutes continuously post-exercise are required to establish diagnoses. Traditionally, to be diagnosed with exertional compartment syndrome, one needs to have intracompartmental pressures at rest of greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, immediately post-exercise of greater than 30 millimeters of mercury, greater than 20 millimeters of mercury at 5 minutes, and greater than 15 millimeters of mercury at 15 minutes. Roscoe et al. compared dynamic intracompartmental pressures between 20 patients with exertional compartment syndrome and 20 asymptomatic controls. The intracompartmental pressure was measured continuously before, during, and after participants exercised on a treadmill wearing identical footwear and carrying a 15-kilogram load. The authors noted pain experienced by study subjects increased incrementally as the study progressed. They also noted that the subjects had higher intracompartmental pressures immediately upon standing at rest compared with controls. This relationship persisted throughout the exercise protocol, with the greatest difference corresponding to the period of maximal tolerable pain. The authors concluded that the diagnostic utility of intracompartmental pressure measurement for exertional compartment syndrome is improved when it's measured continuously during exercise. Aweed et al. performed a systematic review of the published diagnostic criteria commonly in use for exertional compartment syndrome. The authors noted that the current intracompartmental pressure criteria for exertional compartment syndrome is unreliable, and emphasis should remain on good history. They do cite that clinicians may consider measurements taken immediately after exercise because mean levels at this timing interval did not overlap between subjects and controls in the studies they analyzed. The authors conclude that to achieve an objective recommendation for intracompartmental pressure threshold, there is a need to set up a multicenter study group to reach an agreed testing protocol. And moving on to the final question, which of the following intramuscular compartment pressure, or IMCP, measurements is most consistent with the diagnosis of chronic exertional compartment syndrome? And the choices are 1. Resting IMCP of 10 millimeters of mercury. 2. IMCP 1-minute post-exercise of 15 millimeters of mercury. 3. IMCP 1-minute post-exercise of 25 millimeters of mercury. 4. IMCP 5-minutes post-exercise of 15 millimeters of mercury and 5 IMCP 5 minutes post-exercise of 25 millimeters of mercury. The correct answer to this question is 5 IMCP 5 minutes post-exercise of 25 millimeters of mercury. So intramuscular compartment pressure, or IMCP measurements that are diagnostic of chronic exertional compartment syndrome include a resting IMCP of greater than or equal to 15 millimeters of mercury, an IMCP one minute post-exercise of greater than or equal to 30 millimeters of mercury, and an IMCP of five minutes post-exercise of greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury. Therefore, an IMCP of 25 millimeters of mercury five minutes post-exercise would be most consistent with the diagnosis of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. To quickly review once again, chronic exertional compartment syndrome occurs when exercise elevates the IMCP to a point that muscle perfusion is reduced and ischemic pain results. The anterior and lateral compartments of the leg are most commonly affected, followed by the thigh and forearm. Etiology is related to limited osteofascial expansion, increased incidence of fascial hernias, and arterial dysregulation. Patients experience cramping pain and transient neurologic symptoms. Unlike acute compartment syndrome, symptoms tend to be bilateral and resolve with rest. Non-surgical treatment is only successful if a patient completely ceases the activity that is causing symptoms. Therefore, most patients are managed surgically with fasciotomies of the involved compartments. Freypont et al. reviewed the diagnosis and management of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Diagnosis is most often confirmed by measurement of resting and post-exercise IMCP. 
Measurement of muscle oxygenation during and after exercise by infrared spectroscopy is another diagnostic tool and reveals greater deoxygenation and delayed reoxygenation in patients with chronic exertional compartment syndrome compared to controls. MR imaging shows increased T2 signal intensity in the affected compartment post-exercise. Roscoe et al. performed a prospective cohort study evaluating the utility of intramuscular compartment pressure or IMCP measurement for diagnosis of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Study patients with chronic exertional compartment syndrome symptoms demonstrated higher IMCP upon standing at rest compared to asymptomatic controls, that is 35.5 millimeters of mercury versus 23.8 millimeters of mercury with a p-value of 0.006. This elevation persisted through exercise with the greatest difference noted at maximal tolerable pain, that is 114 millimeters of mercury versus 68.7 millimeters of mercury with a p-value of less than 0.001. The authors suggested using a threshold value of 105 millimeters of mercury during maximal tolerable pain leads to improved diagnostic accuracy. That's all for this review about exertional compartment syndrome. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.